morning, Restore. Uh, so I want to just admit right off the bat, I didn't sleep well last night. Um, because of where we are this morning, uh, it's one of those sermons that I know, I don't know how to say it other than I'm just going to say it. It's one of those sermons it's almost impossible to preach without making at least one person mad. Uh, and the way that I've decided to preach this morning, it's entirely possible that I may make all of you mad. Uh, so I just wanted to preface that uh, just because of where we are. We're actually being a very difficult text this morning. Uh, so it's one of those texts that um, if I had my way, I'd love to just skip over it. Uh, but I didn't write scripture. Uh, I didn't write the Bible. And I certainly didn't write this. That being said, um, where we're going to be this morning is also one of those texts that I think is widely misunderstood. And that is the concept of hell. So what is hell? Like, where does it fit into our theological system as Christians? Uh, so it's one, I think hell is one of those belief systems that is in place uh, that is both entirely presumptuous, meaning like we've been informed often by culture, uh, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, Danto's Inferno, South Park, uh, has contributed significantly, whether we realize it or not, to our understandings of hell. And so it's one of those things that people are very, as they should be, passionate about, right? It evokes a strong sense in us of, I want the truth here. This is extremely important, right? The destiny of my soul, like it's a pretty significant thing to consider. And yet, I think we don't actually realize often how much either bad theology we've adopted without realizing it, or how many cultural assumptions have kind of seeped into our understanding of hell. Okay, so, so I'm giving all of this as a disclaimer as we move into the text. Um, a couple of things this morning. I'm going to be a lot more theological than I'd like to be uh, this morning. We're going to cover a lot more verses than I'd like to uh, in a sermon. But the reason I want to do this is I prayed about it and wrote my sermon then and rewrote my sermon yesterday uh, is I, I want to get like, so I, I think it's very difficult to grab any one particular verse uh, in the Bible that speaks to hell and say, this is how it is. Like, it's hard to take any one verse in Scripture and even to say, this one sheds light on all the other ones. This is the one that we use to kind of understand hell, and then we try to fit all the ones underneath, like, fit everything else underneath it. This is hard to do because, believe it or not, your authors in the Bible often talk about hell in different ways, and some of them say somewhat contradictory things about it, including Paul, who will say different things about it in different contexts. And so, so my heart this morning, um, as we unpack this text, is I'm going to be a little bit more, uh, this sermon's going to be a little bit more theological and a little bit more academic than uh, I might like, but I'm also, I want to push us a little bit. I want to push us to, to, to consider and reconsider maybe some of the assumptions that we've had, some of the beliefs about hell that we might have always assumed. And the reason that I want to do this for us is because I think what we believe about hell actually has real implications for our hearts and our souls. So if, if I had to guess, and Restore, um, we are split 
um, kind of down the middle is like conservative and, and more progressive, like conservative backgrounds, more progressive thinking. Uh, but chances are good, like you've heard this preached before in some kind of way, and you're like, I don't know. Something about this feels off to me. Is this the whole truth, or is this being communicated in a way um, that Jesus intended it for it to be communicated? And so this morning, what I want to do um, is really challenge both sides. Like I want to push both sides a little bit. Whether you come from more of a fundamentalist background, more of a conservative background, and that's where you land, or you're more of a progressive uh, side uh, on just the idea of hell, eternal judgment, all of these kinds of things, uh, I do think both sides, and this is where I said I'm going to make everybody mad, I do think both sides are at risk for missing what Scripture says about hell. Like, both sides have things they need to consider and wrestle with and feel, here it is, feel uncomfortable with. Whether you're conservative or progressive, like the concept of hell should make us feel uncomfortable. And if we get, a, we get to a place where we're like, ah, I, I get it, like I'm, I'm good with this, that's exactly where I think it's dangerous for our souls. So, so I was having a conversation, this person lives in a different state, there's no way you'd ever find out who they are. Um, but I was having a conversation with someone not too long ago who uh, had lost a parent who had died, uh, who was not a Christian, and this person was basically along the lines of, well, I kept telling them over and over and over again, and they didn't accept it. And now it's kind of a bummer that they're burning in hell. But I, I was warning them. And there is this sense as I'm listening to this person kind of coldly talk about a parent who they have resigned to eternal, conscious torment. Say, well, I don't know. I tried. And as I was listening to that conversation, I couldn't help but feel that there was a disconnect. Something in the heart that had grown cold. Something that had just resigned to, I mean, anybody suffering eternal conscious torment, much less it being someone that you love or you know dearly or who's raised you. And so one of the things that I think I see often about hell is that, like, depending on what we've grabbed from it, what we believe about it, it can really turn our souls cold. Mm -hmm. It can turn our souls into this kind of place where we're really comfortable with some things that I think should make us extremely uncomfortable. Likewise, if you're on, on the other side, right, so some people are like, I don't know about uh, judgment, hell, condemnation, sin, all of that. Like, that makes me, like, isn't God a God of love? Like, doesn't he kind of just look over that? Like, isn't that kind of like, isn't that Middle Ages archaic? And I think what happens there is we can end up with a kind of naivety and a softness to our souls that is also not good. Because Scripture also warns us there are some things about you that are deeply sinful. And these sinful parts of you are deeply, even eternally destructive. Like they are destroying your soul and they're also hurting or wounding the souls around you. And so both sides, I think, can trivialize things in ways that we're like we kind of dismiss things in ways that our souls either grow kind of cold and a, like a lack of love. Or we can grow in time, kind of like a spiritual naivety where we're just kind of like everything goes and we don't take serious the parts of our hearts uh, and the parts of our lives that don't honor God, don't reflect his character uh, and who he is. And so this morning, what I, what I want to do is, is kind of challenge both mindsets 
so um, I, I know that sometimes I'm not all that good at, at saying, like, where do I want this sermon to go until, like, the last five minutes of the sermon? Uh, I'm trying to get better at that. In my defense, Paul makes a lot of his arguments that way. Uh, in fact, one of the chapters that we're going to be in this morning, he literally spends three chapters, and it's the last verse of the last chapter where he finally says, by the way, this is what I'm saying with all of that. Uh, so in my defense, Paul does it sometimes. But uh, that being said, I do want to try and provide some clarity. So, so where do I want us to land this morning? So one, I told you I'm going to challenge you and then I'm going to frustrate you by telling you I'm also not going to provide a ton of answers for you. Okay, so, so part of, I think, also one of the dangers about hell is, is somebody kind of coming forward and saying, I know exactly what it is. Like, it's really clear here. If you don't buy into my interpretation of this, like, you're doomed. Like, you've all heard that kind of sermon from someone at some point. And I think that's very, very dangerous. Like the Bible, believe it or not, is all, not all that abundantly clear on exactly what happens right after we die. Do we go straight? Jesus says on the, to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. But Paul seems to indicate that once you've died, you stay asleep for quite a long time until resurrection and Jesus returns. And you're like, well, which is it? Is it to this day I'm in paradise? Is it I'm waiting? Right? Like, there's a lot of ambiguity. Uh, and so what I'm not suggesting is that we just sort of like, well, I'll never figure it out. I guess it doesn't matter. That's not it at all. But I do want to grab the essence of what, of what Scripture is trying to get at. And here, here's, if I could describe the essence of what I want us to do this morning, is that I want us to understand hell and judgment texts. Um, I want them to do two things. I want, to, I want them to drive us further into love. Okay, I want them to drive us further into the love of God, the unconditional, relentless pursuit of God over your soul. Like, this is the first thing I want these texts to do. Like, evoke a sense that God has pursued me, is pursuing me, and will go to the ends of the lengths of the earth to pursue me. Like, I want these texts to drive us closer, deeper, farther into the love of God the first thing I want. Uh, the second thing I, I want these to, to challenge us is I want us, I want us to convict us. I, like, I want us to t- like, I want us to take our sins seriously. I want us to take seriously the parts of our lives that don't quite align up with the way that God uh, wants us to, or like the ways that, uh, like, the parts of our lives that maybe don't honor God. Uh, and I will make the case that to honor God is to live a life of love. God is love. And so I want us to take sin seriously, and I want us to consider, and I will argue that Paul's making this case in the text that we're in this morning, am I building my life off the principles, off the foundation that God has provided, that God wants for me, or am I not? Because there's actual, real, serious, tragic consequences if I don't. Like there's actual repercussions, spiritually and otherwise, if I don't build my life off the principles and the character of who God is. And also, I want us to arrive at the end where I'm like, I'm more loved and more pursued and shown more mercy than I could possibly imagine. And these two things, I think, when they come together, provide, I think, a picture, at least broadly, of what Scripture says about hell and what it's trying to do. It's trying to get us to see that we are relentlessly and unconditionally pursued, and yet we have and willfully and sometimes intentionally built our lives around tragic consequences, around destructive things, and like there are war- like strong warnings to let go of that. 
It's not good for you. It's not good for your soul. It's not good for the people around you. Let go of that. That's what I want to drive at this morning. That's where I kind of want to hope, I want us to land is, is to hold these two things in tension. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in first, uh, Second Thessalonians. We're going to be starting in the very first chapter. Um, I'm going to read the words behind me on the screen. You can look it up in your Bibles if you want. Uh, I'm going to be using the message translation this morning because I like some of the essence of what the message translation grabs. Uh, so one other thing about all of this real quickly before we get started is this, this you may not, so in Greek, uh, you can have very long like concepts or sentences that are uh, like concepts that last an entire page. So believe it or not, the text that we're in this morning is one long sentence in the Greek. Like, how is that possible? Well, I'm not going to go into all the grammar, like how that's possible. But this sentence, like this, this section starts with Paul trying to spring in like a sense of gratitude and hope. So everything that means what that means is everything he says after that is a springboard for them helping like fostering gratitude and hope. Okay? He's talking about hell, but he's doing it because he's fostering, he's expressing gratitude and he's wanting to implement hope. Okay, so your your modern translators break it up into all kinds of sentences because that's how English works. You can't have an entire page be one sentence. Uh, but in the Greek, what Paul's trying to do is he's ex he's established a tone of I want to give you hope, and I want to give you gratitude, and then everything he says after that kind of falls in place. Uh, so I want to preface that as I read that, just so that you guys have that in mind. We're going to be starting in verse one, uh, and I'll read through verse ten. He says here, "You need to know, friends." that thanking God over and over for you is not only a pleasure, it is a must. We have to do it. Your faith is growing phenomenally. Your love for each other is developing wonderfully. Why? It's only right that we give thanks. We are so proud of you. You're so steady and determined in your faith despite all the hard times that have broadsided you. We tell everyone we meet in the churches all about you. All this trouble is a clear sign that God has decided to make you fit for the kingdom. You're suffering now, but justice is on the way. When the master Jesus appears out of heaven in a blaze of fire with his strong angels... He'll even up the score by settling accounts with those who have gave you such a bad time. His coming will be the break we've been waiting for. Those who refuse to know God and refuse to obey the message or the gospel will pay for what they've done. Eternal exile from the presence of the master and his splendid power is their sentence. But on that very same day, when he comes, he will be exalted by his followers and celebrated by all who believe, all because you believed what we told you. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, would you center us this morning as we tackle um, a really misunderstood topic, uh, as we tackle something that culture has defined for us, that South Park has defined for us, Father, but sometimes your word, scripture, um, who you are, your character hasn't defined for us? Father, would you give us hope? That's what this is about in the end. This is hope. Would you help us to see hope? Would you help us to feel liberated by your love? Father, help us to not be scared of the truth, 
but to long for it and then to build our lives off of it. Father, you're providing for us a foundation that cannot be shaken and cannot be taken away, even in texts like this one. It's a privilege and it's a hope. Would you help us see that this morning? We love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so, so um, jumping in here, uh, Paul is going to start, these first five verses, Paul's going to start by saying, uh, there's, a, there's a group of you that have had an exceptionally hard time. Okay, so I, I want to preface like the essence of how Paul often speaks about hell here, and then how different uh, we might have heard it spoken before. So Paul is speaking to a group of people who are in an essence, they are, they are enduring, they are survivors of an ethnic cleansing. This is how bad it's gotten in Thessalonica. Like there are people who are being killed, dragged out in the streets without like trial, without court, without any kind of sense of justice, families being ripped apart, like innocent children and families that are being murdered. Like he's speaking to a group of people that are being religiously and ethnically cleansed from their culture, from their world. So why I want to start that is I want, because here's the thing um, that, I, that, I, that makes me uh, so angsty sometimes about how I get, hear about hell, is it's often preached as a warning by people to others who disagree with you politically, morally, or ethically. It is such a different, like, uh, like scenario and essence and spirit than what Paul is saying here. Paul is speaking to people who have lost loved ones and he's trying to get them to see, hey, there is justice. It is coming. Don't lose hope. And so one of the things that really bothers me uh, about how often hell gets narrated in our culture today is a lot of people will use passages like this. Well, you disagree with me politically or, or ethically over an issue or morally even over an issue. Like you've got, you've got moral problems I don't have. Like your day's coming is an entirely different spirit than what Paul is trying to do here for these people. They've lost everything. Some of them have lost their children. Some of them have lost their families. Like we think that there was a pretty severe uh, cleansing basically taking place in and among this group of people. And so Paul's not writing them to say, well, this other group, see, tough luck for them. What he's saying is the injustices that you are suffering will not and have not gone unnoticed by a God who is just. I want us to hear that this morning um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think that sometimes we struggle to heal from some of the injustice that has been perpetrated against us because we're not entirely sure or convinced that God cares or sees it. We're not entirely convinced uh, in some of those moments, particularly if we were in a complete position of powerlessness, someone over us, a complete position of power hurt us or abused us or harmed us in some kind of way. Part of the challenge of, I think sometimes we have from healing from that is not really seeing that God is a God who sees and is deeply disturbed by injustice and will set the record straight. This is, part of what, this is part of what the judgment texts in the New Testament communicate to us, is there is a God and justice is deeply important to him. It's part of his care. It's not just important. It's not like he's, I like justice. It's one of those things I like to do when I can. Uh, like he is justice. Like he is like his love is like the thing that empowers each of us 
to feel like to know that we belong to him. And so those moments in our lives where someone steals that or takes that away, like he's communicating here in this essence, like he's communicating here in the spirit of like, don't forget, God is a God of justice. He's not overlooked this. You will see a day in which what has been wronged will be set right. And this is why sometimes when I hear judgment texts used in political context or even some of the theological context, I always want to be like, don't you dare just use this to like hang it over the heads of somebody that disagrees with you on something. But it's so far from the spirit of how God, like Paul's even using a text like this. Okay, so he goes on to say, starting in verse five, you are suffering now, but justice is on the way. When the master Jesus appears out of heaven in a blaze of fire with his strong angels, he'll even up the score by settling accounts with those who gave you such a bad time. His coming will be the break we've been waiting for. Some of your translations say, like, this will bring the rest that your heart has longed for. This will bring the stillness that your heart needs in a restless, unjust world. Like, God is coming, and he will settle. Like, but he's not just going to settle the scores in a vindictive kind of way. He's going to bring rest to your soul. To know that the harm that's being perpetrated towards you, the harm that's been perpetrated on you, will not go unanswered. And it has not gone unnoticed. This is the break you've been waiting for. Those who refuse to know God and refuse to obey the message will pay for what they've done. Uh, eternal exile, or you could translate that eternal destruction from the presence of the master and his splendid power is their sentence. But on that very same day when he comes, he will be exalted by his followers and celebrated by all who believe, all because we believe, all because you believed what we have told you. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose two, two things here. Paul seems to insinuate that there's some kind of eternal uh, destruction like due to this other group of people. Uh, I want to challenge this by saying the, the idea of there being eternal destruction is actually a little bit of an oxymoron. You may not realize it because destruction uh, is a cessation of existence. But like it's, if I destroy a house, that house no longer exists. So if I were to say like, if I were to say, I'm going to, I'm going to eternally destroy. So my daughter loves to build things and we knock them over. Um, this is like, but if I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to eternally destroy something. How do you eternally destroy something? Once it's destroyed, it ceased to exist. And so I actually think what Paul is insinuating here, he does this in second, uh, first Thessalonians also and other places as well, is he's insinuating the thing that like, the evil that is being perpetrated that everyone is building their life on, at some point, God's going to tear it down. It's not going to exist anymore. What he's trying to get them to do is you can build a life out of love, and we'll talk a little bit about this. I'll show you some verses where Paul's um, encouraging his churches to do this. Or you can build a life that's based on destruction, this destruction in which God will come and tear down the things that you have built because they are not of this kingdom of love. Uh, so, the question we, we have to ask about hell, right? So this is where I'm going I'm to actually intentionally muddy the waters, not because I want to confuse us, because I, but I want us to actually think about these things critically, to wrestle with them and to pray about them, and to not necessarily take me as the ultimate authority on them either. Um, so two questions we have to really ask about hell. The first is, the Bible says God is love. This, there, there's some theology behind that. I'm going to show you those verses. The Bible also says that God is everywhere. So does that mean that God is in hell? 
And does that mean that hell is a product of God's love? Like, th- these are two things I want to I challenge us with. The first one being, uh, if, if God is everywhere, is God in hell? Okay, so uh, John 1, verses 3 through 4. Through him, all things were made. Without him, this includes hell, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light to all mankind. Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Romans 11.36, for him and through him and for him, again, through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so, so, so here's the first thing I want to challenge us off. Um, we have this view of hell in our culture that it's sort of like the, it's an equal but opposite force to heaven, uh, which is, by the way, Gnosticism. Uh, it was an early form of heresy that was kind of encroaching on Christianity, which said that like God and Satan are kind of like they're like here's the earth. They're they're juxtaposed opposite of one another, and they're duking it out for the souls of all of mankind. But what Gnosticism started to do was started to see like the supremacy of Christ in all things as less than it actually was, and like gave Satan more power than he actually had. And so like this is I think very similar to the notion of South Park. Um, where it kind of get like, if you ever have a, like, whenever there's a cut scene or family guy, like to hell, Satan's sort of in charge of the place. But there's this, like, but there are scriptures that insinuate there is nothing in which God does not have dominion over. So you're left with some real tension there. If you see hell is this place that Satan rules and heaven's this place that God rules and they're kind of at war with one another. Like there's some real actual Gnosticism that might have seeped into our our theology from our culture that we don't even realize because what we've actually started to do is we've started to see the supremacy of Christ in all things as less than it is because we've started to see that there could be spaces somehow that exist that don't have the supremacy of Christ in them, that exist somehow without him, that sustain themselves without him, or that have something else other than him as their Lord. Okay, so again, I'm muddling the waters intentionally because I want us to wrestle with some of this. So you're like, well, wait a second. If God is supreme in all things, how can there be a space where he does not exist or his presence is not there uh, that somehow like Satan's in charge of? I'm gonna argue that scripture actually is not making that case. And I wanna like, I wanna push on this a little bit because um, we've got this notion, I think, in our culture that the supremacy of Christ, like there are areas at which Christ is not supreme over. So the other thing that I wanna, I wanna wrestle with is what John says in 1 John 4, 16 and 17. So, so first problem we have with hell is, is if, is if God is everywhere and all things exist through him and by him and for him, then what is hell? Did he create it? Is it part of his existence? All of the, like, these are things I want to wrestle with. Second thing, uh, John says, here, here's where all of this is going. John says in 1 John 4, 16 and 17, and I know I said there'd be lots of verses this morning. Hang with me. Uh, and we know and rely on the love of God. We know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. 
okay, here's what Paul's insinuating. What I, what I, the case that I, I would make that Paul suggests is when he's talking about eternal destruction, when he's talking about this tearing things down, what he's talking about is there's, there's a way to live our life in which we build it because we've lived a life like Christ. Love, mercy, faithful obedience to God. Right? This is the Christ who on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is the Christ who extended friendship to Judas even though he knew Judas would betray him. This is the Christ who washed his disciples' feet. This is the Christ that said, love your enemy, show mercy to those who do you harm. Paul, I think, sees all, and we've talked about this before in some of our previous sermons. You can catch them on Spotify or iTunes or YouTube or Facebook. But Paul sees us building this life to reflect and look like Christ. And it's this continue, like he doesn't see um, our eternal destinies as something that starts once we die. He sees them as starting now. When you become a Christian, that eternal like destiny that God has set you on starts now. Like heaven and your experience of heaven and your like living in heaven starts now. It's not something that you are waiting for. Yes, you're waiting for the culmination or the completion of that. But when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, what Paul, I think, is arguing, and I'll show you where he argues this elsewhere, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of almost familiarity. Okay, it's like, it's like, I promise I wouldn't use sports analogies. I'm not using any particular sports analogy, but it's the reason you practice or you play an instrument. So that when the day of the rehearsal comes or the day of the big game comes, you already know what to do. Like, and hopefully you've practiced it enough so that it's almost reflect, like reflexive. What Paul wants them to see is that the, the story that God has started by the breaking in of Christ in incarnation will continue to completion, but it has already started now. So start living, start reigning, start aligning your life to reflect who Christ is by looking like him because he is the supreme ruler of all things. So the other question that we often get about hell is, is uh, does God torment eternally those who are in disobedience to him? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually not give you an answer on that because a couple of things. One, um, Christendom, like Christianity at large has disagreements on this. And there are large portions of Christianity that believe uh, in Christian, what we call Christian universalism. This idea that Christ is... Uh, sacrificed himself for all people and that God in his love and in his sovereignty is capable of saving anyone regardless of their disobedience, regardless of how much they rebel against him. Okay, so, so you may have heard somebody say, that's heresy. It is not. There is no universal church council that has ever condemned this. Okay, Gregory of Nyssa, who's the final editor of the Nicene Creed, the reason that you guys are Trinitarian Christians, you believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be worshipped as three persons, yet one God, the reason you believe that is because Gregory of Nyssa edited the Nicene Creed. He was a full-on Christian universalist who saw God's judgment as not being punitive but restorative. He said, when a soul is faced with the ultimate love at which it has been created for, it cannot resist it eternally. 
It may for a long time or for a while, but at some point it cannot resist the love of God. So what I'm trying to suggest here is two things. One, uh, you may have heard that this is heresy. It's not like it's just, there's no universal church council that has condemned this. But second off, I want to encourage some of you. So some of you have wrestled with this. And you're like, Wait a second. I get that there needs to be judgment, but eternal, eternal conscious torment of a soul trillions and trillions and trillions of years from now. Is that love? Like, what do I do with that? Like, I, I want to actually provide some, like, validation for you this morning of, like, at least don't be shamed by asking that question. I can't tell you what the answer is, but I at least want to, like, provide some sense of, like, there are other Christians, some very influential Christians to the like Christian, like large Christendom who have asked and wrestled with those same types of questions. What do I do with the eternal love of God and this idea that someone could be tormented eternally and consciously forever is a question that I think is fair and right and appropriate to ask. Regardless of where you land, like, I, I, don't, I don't want to shame anyone into at least asking and wrestling with that question. Uh, so Paul seems to indicate this in a couple of different places. So Romans 9, 10, and 11, these are these primary verses that people often, um, for, 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 especially for in, in defense of Calvinism it's, uh, or, or reform, Reformed theology, which I'm highly influenced by, by the way. Like, um, I, there's a lot of respect about that. But the nine, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes this argument of, hey, there are like, some of you that have been, uh, before the foundation of the world, have been set for destruction. Others of you have been determined for life. Like, and who, like, this is the famous quote where Paul says, like, who is it you? You're the pot, like, you're the, you're the pot. Who are you to argue with the potter over what your eternal destiny is? And so there's, there's kind of this insinuation of, like, what right is it of you to, to ask of God what he's going to do with you? The thing is, though, I hear that, but often we don't read the very final, and I told you there are some arguments that Paul makes where he doesn't actually conclude it until the very end, and he does this here. You don't actually, like, the very final verse in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the very final piece of that chapter, uh, Paul says, God has co-signed all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all all, not some, all. Okay, one of the things we also miss is in Romans eleven twenty six. Paul just makes this argument. So he talks about Israel uh, being in constant rebellion towards God, constantly sinning against God, constantly uh, rebelling against God, never honoring God with their life. But yet in Romans eleven twenty six, as he moves to the end of that argument, he says, all of Israel will be saved. And so it's almost like, so Paul never explicitly says, I'm a Christian universalist, although here he gets very close to saying that, at least as it pertains to the nation of Israel. I know there's lots of different viewpoints on what does that mean, like covenant and all of that that he had with Israel, and that's not applied to the Gentiles and all of that. That's fine. I don't, um, I don't, I don't want to not 
um, encourage you to have those conversations. What I want to suggest, though, is that some of what Paul says here seems to indicate that despite the nation of Israel's constant and willful rebellion and revolt against God, despite their constant hard-heartedness and stubbornness and refusal to honor God, all of Israel will eventually be saved. And then a few short verses later, he says, for God has co-assigned disobedience to all so that he might show mercy on all. Mark 9.49 is probably one of the most confusing portions of... So Jesus actually speaks directly of hell. This is this part where he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into the kingdom of God without an eye, without a hand, uh, than, than to go into hell with your eye in your hand. Okay. We don't read the very final part of what Jesus says very often there, but he says, by the way, you're all getting salted with this fire. And you're like, wait, what? Did you just say, like, all of us are, are, are going to come in contact with this fire? What does that mean? Uh, Hebrews talks about, uh, gives, g- like, a picture of God as a consuming fire. His love is this consuming, purifying fire. Revelations 20, uh, 14 um, also gives this indication uh, that, like, this, this, like, it says something along the lines of, uh, and at the end of all of this, Hades, which is a New Testament kind of term for hell, will get thrown into the lake of fire. And you're like, wait, hell's getting thrown into hell? What's happening here? And the answer is, like, again, I want to stand before you and say, I don't have a, I don't have a clear picture other than I want us to arrive back at uh, what I suggested earlier, is that these judgment texts give us this clear warning. You can build a life off that honors Christ, that is consumed with his, that is, uh, permeates his love, that is cultivated by his love, that reflects his love and his character to the people around you, or you can willfully choose something else, but that willful choosing of something else, God will come and set the record straight. Like, take, take your own selfishness and your own sinfulness serious. But also recognize that God has coincided disobedience to all so he could be merciful on all. There is no way you're getting by any of this without being totally and completely and utterly dependent on the mercy of God. So that you can't get to the end of this and you're like, well, there's that other group. They weren't as spiritually clever as I was or as morally disciplined as I was. Look how they turned out. No, no, no. You were completely, and I just unbuttoned my shirt because I'm that nervous. Sorry, y'all. Um, like you are completely, regardless of where you see all of this, you are completely and totally and utterly dependent on the mercy of God. So Paul will say here uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, this is, I think, his clearest picture of what he's, he's again, he keeps going back to this uh, idea of destruction. He does it in 1 Thessalonians. He's doing it again here. Uh, he uses the, our translation said eternal exile, but it can also be translated eternal destruction. 
He says it in 1 Thessalonians. There are going to be those who are, are geared towards destruction. There are going to be those who are geared towards life. So don't be drunk. Live like you're in the day. Um, what he's getting at is there's this way of building your life that's going to matter and in a way that's going to matter to Jesus. And there's going to be a way you can build it that doesn't. Um, but here, he, I think he clearly says this. He says this uh, in verses 10 through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, his judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. Hebrews, God is referred to as consuming fire. And this fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Listen to this. You might have built your life around all of the wrong things, and yet this builder will be saved, even though as if one escaping through the flames. Paul uses this analogy, like you can build your life off things that don't honor God. Uh, but in the end, it's going to, like, your soul will be saved. It seems to be what he's suggesting. But everything else that you've built will come crashing down, and you'll get out. But you're going to get out as if one, like, getting out of a burning building. So there's, like, this assurance of God's love. But also, he wants to, to warn them in Corinthians. Like, so, and he's writing to a church, by the way, that is extremely sinful. He has to start by addressing this church and say, don't sleep with your mother-in-law. Like, literally, there's someone sleeping with their mother-in-law, and then everybody else is bragging about it. Like, nobody cares. And there's somebody else, like, stealing from the church, and everybody's just kind of like, I don't know. It's what the guy does. So, he, like, he's writing to a church that has completely built their life off of, like, sinful things. And he warns them, but listen, like, if you build your life off of this, like, at some point, the consuming fire of God, which I would argue is the consuming love of God, will burn it all down. You will be saved, but you're going to get out as if one uh, is escaping from a burning building. Uh, so how does, how does Paul close this, this portion of Thessalonians, starting in verse 11? Because we know that this extraordinary day is just ahead, we pray for you all the time. Pray that our God will make you fit for what he's called you to be. Pray that he'll fill your good ideas and acts of faith with his own energy so that it all, and here again, Paul seems to suggest like it's, it's about building something that amounts to something. If your life honors the name of Jesus, he will honor you. Sounds, sounds a little like Paul's saying, so be really good and behave so that like eventually Jesus will, will set you up on the right right place. But then he says right after this, grace is behind and through all of this. Our God giving himself freely, the master Jesus Christ giving himself freely. You want to know how to build your life in a way that doesn't come burning down someday? It's to build it off of Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy for you. There is no other way. His mercy teaches us to be obedient not the other way around. We don't become obedient and then get his mercy. His love for us teaches us how to be faithful, not the other way around. We don't become faithful first, then receive his love. His love teaches us how to honor him 
His mercy for us teaches us how to honor him. All right, so church, where, where do we land with all of this? Um, I'll wrestle with you this week on that. If you want to talk to me more about it, if there's something you said, hey, this, this concerns me, or I've never heard this before, or is this true, like, reach out to me. I think you guys know, like, I want to be accessible to you. Um, my heart, though, through this isn't necessarily to change your convictions on it, so it restore, um, I want us to be a church uh, that is free to disagree sometimes. Um, and because this, this idea of hell and what is it and Christian universalism and exclusive salvation through Christ and all of these things, um, these, are, these are very important issues to wrestle with, particularly, um, but some of these views on hell um, have never been, like there has been nuance within the Christian faith by extremely influential Christians who have believed very, very different things than some of the things that you may or may not have been taught. And so the reason I, I, what I want us to do is make some space for that. So as, as a pastor, um, this is something I feel very strongly about is restore. Like as long as I'm the pastor here, as long as I'm your pastor, what I want us to do is build our foundation off of Jesus. So part of the reason we take this stance and allow for disagreements is, is because I don't want us to get sucked into so many of the theological like trivialities that we become convinced are essentials. And part of the way that we do that is by actually making space to say, I'm not sure, and then diving into Scripture with one another, like wrestling with one another, maybe even arguing with one another as long as you're doing it like politely and in love. But like the goal here isn't to just say like, so here's where we land. The goal here is to say, I want to build my foundation off the life of Christ. I want to build it off of his love and his mercy for me as I interpret and wrestle with these texts that aren't always abundantly clear, I want to know that I'm guided by his spirit. This is where I want us to land as a church. Um, let me pray for us as we worship and close today. Um, Father, would you have um, mercy on me? Um, mercy on us? I feel like I've um, bit off more than I could chew today. Um, Father, it's sometimes hard, especially as a pastor, to not just say, here's the answer, um, but to ask us to wrestle, to pray, to seek you. Father, there's always a little bit of confusion on where do we land with all of this. Um, I know in my own heart, I'm this way and I'm that way, and I hear this argument, I consider this, and I wrestle with that. Here's what I, here's what I want, Father, more than anything. I want faithful obedience to you. I want to reflect your character, your integrity and your righteousness and your sense of justice. I never want to use texts like these to leverage um, over someone who disagrees with me. I don't want to use them as a way to shame other people. Father, so would you show me how to be faithfully obedient to you and to build my life on your foundation, to love the way that you love, to be merciful in the way that you are merciful have compassion in the way that you've had compassion, but also to be just and righteous in the way that you are just and righteous. Father, we need you. We need your help. Would you be with us as a church? Pray all of these things in your name. Amen.